the Talking Race podcast from the Centre for Race, Education and Decoloniality at Leeds Beckett University. Welcome to the Talking Race podcast. In this episode of Talking Race, we're focusing on race and racism in education and talking with Corsa Jam and Daniel Kabedi. We will be discussing how racism stained their experience of school, how we live in a structurally racist society where our schools have become exam factories and how the teaching of history serves to alienate pupils, how the nation couldn't have functioned without teachers and teaching assistants through the COVID crisis. We unpack what anti-racist education looks like and how education should be based on listening to the child. Corsa Jan has a wealth of experience in education. She's an assistant head teacher at Bankside Primary School in Leeds, a school which serves a predominantly Muslim community. As a senior member of staff, she has led on teaching and learning, pupil voice and personal social health education. She has received a national award for her work in challenging racism. Daniel Kabedi is the Vice President of the National Education Union and he's the Black Members' constituency seat on the NEU Executive. He was a teacher in early years and in a school for children with social, emotional and behavioural difficulties. Daniel is an ardent anti-racist campaigner. Thank you so much for agreeing to be part of the Talking Race podcast on race and education. I have with me Kosa Jan and Daniel Kabedi. Just by way of background, I wondered if you could say a little bit about how race and racism have affected you when you were growing up in the, in this country. So Kaza, would you like to start? Yeah, I was born and brought up here. I was born in Bradford uh, in 1965, 55 years ago. And um, at the time, I think there's so many things that I didn't see many other people that looked like me. I, my earliest memory of race and the difference, but not knowing how to articulate it, was when I was in my first school, we used to have sessions where you could go and free choice, you could choose. And I would never seem to be chosen mm-hmm. to, to go and play on these equipment. And I remember one time we had a, a which must, must have been a supply teacher, and she allowed me to go. And that was the very first time and the only time that I was allowed to go and play in the free corner. But I was on my own. No, the children were with me. So that was one of my first memories. And then also I went to a residential school, which was all white as well, for a few years. And during this time, I always felt like the other. And I remember growing up, because I, I you know, the books I was reading, the stories, the fairy tales, there were blonde hair, blue eyes. And I remember one, one event where I just covered myself head to toe with talcum powder and real, and I used to go to sleep, willing myself to wake up in the morning with blonde hair, blue eyes. And I remember just, you know, repeatedly just feeling as though that I, I wanted to fit in. And my teachers couldn't say my first, my first name is Tanvia, and they couldn't say my first name. And I remember the teacher saying to me, oh, we can't, that's a really difficult name. Tell you what, let, let's change that to Tanya. That's much easier. Oh, and that suits you better, doesn't it? And I kind of went along with it. Um, so I was always kind of feeling as though 
anything to do with me, the way I looked, the things that I did were different and I was desperate to blend in. And I remember when I was in maths and I used to love maths and I remember asking my teacher, putting my hand up and just saying, sir, I've got a different answer to the equation. And he said, well, let me explain to you. Well, we the English, we start from the left to the right. And you Pakis, you start from the right to the left. And everybody else started to laugh in the classroom. And I just was mortified. I wanted the ground to open up and swallow me. Went home and told my mum. And my mum said, don't be silly, you must have said something else. You teach you what I said that. And she, she didn't challenge it at all. And I remember growing up with quite, you know, conflict. Because I didn't want to be in my culture, my religion. I just, I wanted to fit in and I didn't. And it was only later in life, after I actually got married, I actually began to embrace what my culture was and what my religion was and, and actually begin to, to question things. But it, it did impact me a lot. And how about yourself, Daniel? Uh, I'm generation younger than Corsa and I, I can sort of, I feel like, you know, I, I can certainly empathise with, with a lot of what Corsa was saying. I was, I was born in West London in 1987 and I can remember my early years not really knowing much about race or being different. I went to a quite a multicultural nursery. Obviously, it wasn't something that we experienced. And then I moved out to Northampton sometime later quite a predominantly white area. And I remember feeling things differently, experiencing racism. But I can remember the first time that I really knew what racism was. And I really knew what the risk of being black was. And that was the murder of Stephen Lawrence. I was six years old. And that, you know, seeing that on the news and, and that becoming mainstream. And I can remember being quite frightened, you know, like thinking, oh my God, you can be killed for being black. That's horrific. And then through schooling, it's only as I've really got older that I've realised the racism that I experienced and how I dealt with it. So I wanted to fit in. I wanted to be liked by everyone. And the way I did that was I was the class clown. I was the one because I didn't want to, because I did experience racism from white children. And But if I was a joker, then I would like me. And, and my best friend, John Paul, he was black as well. And the way he got through it, he was just really good at sport. So everyone would like him because he was good at, at sport. But I remember, you know, certainly being treated differently. I remember, uh, there's this, this story uh, that I tell fairly regularly to people. I was in year nine and I was in, ge- in geography and I was being disruptive with my white friend, Andrew. And the teacher came over. It didn't, it didn't challenge both of us. And he just said, look, you're not in the jungle now, you know, Daniel. Can, I can remember being physically shocked by that. By that, and that this would have been in the early 2000s, you know, I, I would have, it would have been the year 2000. I was 13 in the year year 2000. But now I've got older, and I've really reflected on my experience in education. I've really got a bit of an understanding of how racism impacted on my experience uh, in in education. I wonder if you could reflect on this. So some people, including teachers and uh, student teachers have asked me, what's race got to do with education? And I just wondered how you'd respond to that, because it often leaves me just gasping for air. And I wondered what your thoughts were on that. Shall we start with Daniel? We live in a racist society. It's structurally racist. It's embedded into the system of economics, in my view. You know, the the capitalist system to, to maintain itself requires 
racism. That means that we have no institution that is free from that. We don't have the, the, the criminal justice system in health, in housing. Racism is in, in, in endemic, it is institutionalised, and education is no different. We have a curriculum that is dictated by those in parliament, and those in parliament come from particular backgrounds. We also have a, an education system where what is taught is sort of skewed to sort of the white middle class background you know that that's what features we also have a, a workforce a, a education force where by the way i do believe there's lots of good anti-racist teachers but it is predominantly white racism race and racism can't escape education um, and that impacts on on all children and, and not just children I, I believe communities as well so it's just everywhere isn't it that's how i view it institutional racism is the collective failure of an institution to provide a professional service to people due to their race and ethnicity. Racism that does not speak its name. And that really is what racism is all about. It's not the animosity of a single individual, it's what's behind that individual. It's the system, the institution, society. I would say it's got everything to do with, with education. And I think that anybody that questions that shows me that they have actually been denied understanding and their experience is severely lacking and that they are ripe to, to learn more, develop themselves to become more inclusive. Yeah, I just wanted to add something that, I, you know, I, 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 if anybody doesn't believe that racism exists in education, they just need to look at the statistics. You know, there is still a black attainment gap. Often black children will enter school, and I mean sort of black in the, the political sense, but black children, and it's particularly, you know, black Caribbean boys, for example, will enter education above expectations. They'll tail off, start to tail off at key stage two, and then really nosedive at key stage three. And this is a systemic problem. Again, if you want to check the race disparities and things like exclusions, you have three times more likely to be excluded if you're black. If you're black with a special need and on free school meals, it multiplies to something like 156 Mm. times more likely to be excluded. Racism, very real in education. And anybody who doesn't believe that just needs to have a look at some statistics. You know, what Daniel said is is very much about the disparities that we've got within our society, you know, where people are saying, oh, well, I don't see colour. And then when you're looking, reflecting in our schools, for example, where are our senior leaders? You cannot be what you can't see. My secondary school was led by a phenomenal woman, woman of colour at that. Seeing her in her power, it meant that I felt that I could do anything because she was my role model. To see that doesn't exist, some six forms, it's a call to action, something has to be done. Ah, something that I'd heard recently saying that, oh, it's amazing how my, my institution becomes very, very diverse after five o'clock, mm-hmm. meaning that after five o'clock, we've got the cleaners coming in who are black. And otherwise, it's kind of the snowy peaks effect. So, and that has, hasn't just happened. That's because there's been an absence of acknowledgement about race issues within our society and systemic racism and the bias which have created divisions in society. So the debate about race and education has been ongoing for about mm, 30 or 40 years from the days of the education of immigrant children, and I was one of those immigrant children, to the debates about multicultural education and anti-racist education. You know, I remember in the 80s, I was asked at a conference, are you a multicultural education supporter or are you an anti-racist education supporter? How do you think those 
debate and perhaps contemporary ones today have shaped your stance on race and education. I remember David Cameron's speech. Under the doctrine of state multiculturalism, we've encouraged different cultures to live separate lives apart from each other and apart from the mainstream. Saying multiculturalism isn't working, and and you know that where many of us had tried significantly hard to develop good multicultural and anti-racist practice, it shouldn't be either or. And and the the lack of understanding. I mean, what's happened? I've seen we built up. You know, we had the Plowden report, we, you know, the Swan report, etc. And we started to build up on that and, and raise awareness of multiculturalism and the need and the importance to, to develop our future citizens, future leaders holistically. And we were really beginning to, to make a difference. And then what happened was that uh, people that were in power, such as David Cameron, who are part of the elitist society, who've got very Eurocentric perspective, very sort of biased view of, of society, started making those decisions that it wasn't working, we didn't need that. Well, we don't need to learn about other people's identities and their cultural heritage. We don't need to actually understand where they fit in society. They've got to fit in with us. And and when you've seen that because things have been literally systematically taken right back to pre-Plowden report, you just feel you want to sort of put your head in your hands and say, how have we got here? And, and how has it gone so wrong? And if we're going, if we develop good multicultural practice, anti-racist practice, that is good education for all. And you know, we are seeing the effects of not having that. Yeah, I mean, in terms of the debates around racism and how they've shaped me as an educator, it's been, you know, pretty, pretty fundamental. My concern is I really feel like we're losing ground in the fight against racism in education. And I think that is really down to the privatisation and marketisation of education generally. I mean, when I talk to sort of, you know, teachers, particularly in London, who were teaching in the 70s and 80s, I mean, they collectivised around embedding anti-racism in education. And it was something that was talked about amongst teachers in school. And I feel that there's been a real problem and we have lost ground in this fight, particularly because of the, the government attacks on teacher training that has been, you know, over, over the past couple of decades, they've chipped away at teacher training with the, their motive being that if they do professionalise teachers, they can hammer their terms and conditions. That's really what underpins it. But, you know, there's been a lot of this, oh, you know, we don't, we need, we can take teacher training away from the universities. It's not an academic thing. It's an apprenticeship. You can learn it on the job. And this is highly problematic because teachers need to get an understanding of anti-racist pedagogy. And where are they going to get that? is in the university so I think there's a real issue around the, the fight against racism in education we are we are losing some some ground and also there's you know in this complete narrowing of the curriculum a ruthless accountability regime that's been put on schools where you need to get your English and your maths and if you don't the schools don't they're going to be judged inadequate the head's going to lose their job and it's that pressure cooker isn't it that's what it creates and it also but what it does is it does cut away the space for, for discussion around anti-racism in school and for teachers also to become active anti-racists, which is what we which is what we obviously need. Battles of the past, the debates of the past certainly shapes my experience and my knowledge as an educator. My concern is that we are actually losing ground in this fight. Can I can I come back with a comment there, uh, Vinny? Mm. Daniel, I'd challenge you a little bit on, on the losing ground because I don't think we are. I think that the current movement is actually saying, no, we lost ground. We are now beginning to reclaim it. And I think there is a movement, definitely, that there's a desire that not just 
by black professionals, but by majority of the society who are kicking back and saying, no, we need to decolonize curriculum. When people, the social awareness and social awakening that people have had post George Floyd's murder and then Coulson's statue coming down, it's actually woken up many people who's, who've been sleepwalking into sort of a Eurocentric society. And the other thing that Daniel said, and I agree wholly, is that we've had pressure where we have lost ground for multiculturalism, anti-racism and decolonizing is because the DfE and Ofsted have created exam factories that where we are just judging schools on their stats results and their exam results and the unhealthy diet of when you go into a majority of primary schools, the stress that has been placed on, on students, on teachers, on, on head teachers, governors, etc., to perform and to ensure that children get high grades in literacy and numeracy. So therefore, majority of year six curriculum until SATS goes out of the window and it is just your literacy and numeracy and it's unhealthy and it actually that is, it's turning children off from education. You know, they're switching off and that's where we need to challenge. And we need to say that we need to change the curriculum. There is another curriculum that we can have and we need to be the ones that are, are shouting loud and clear because the government need to listen. And I think that, because we're now gaining that kind of momentum, if we continue to build on this, I think there will be a change. One of the things that always perplexed me, really, with the changes that have come in over the curriculum, over academisation, as you said, Daniel, is that there hasn't been a pushback from teachers. You know, I remember being a teacher in the 1980s and uh, the national curriculum was introduced and we had a folder per subject and then statements per subject and I do remember taking industrial action as a result as a way of pushing back against those changes obviously we didn't succeed but nevertheless a gesture was made what do you think are the key debates around education and race now that we really need to mobilize around as as Causa says, it's about decolonising education and embedding anti-racism throughout the the curriculum. Causa is completely right, by the way, that the, the murder of George Floyd, the tipping of Colson into the the Bristol Harbour. This statue of a 17th century slave trade owner, Edward Colson, in Bristol, stands no more. Protesters then dragged it through the street to the harbour. Does feel like a tipping. Point in that battle against racism you know we've got millions of people taking part in protests around around the world but in terms of education I think there's a real fight to be had around around the curriculum we had 250,000 people sign a petition uh, to parliament demanding that the historical truth is taught on Britain's colonial past I mean that's all what we're really asking for we're asking for black people to be celebrated in education all year round not just in October we're you know wanting some black people to be represented in within the school within literature within within mathematics you know let's teach about how algebra is arabic for example we we want some historical truth to be taught on britain's colonial past because it's vitally important it's a national disgrace by the way i think the crimes of colston in the royal africa company and thousands of slaves that were that were taken branded with with rac on their chest we i think it's a national disgrace that we don't educate about that it teaches it means that all children are taught a distorted version of history that is far from honest but most importantly 
something I think is incredibly alienating. It's an alienating for black children not to see themselves reflected in the education system. But it's also, I think, alienating white children. Where does this English exceptionalism come from? You know, I think we're teaching it in schools because we're teaching this sort of nationalistic, uh, simplistic island island narrative, you know, a chronological narrative of, of British history that's not actually true. It's not a real reflection. So, so I do believe, yeah, certainly... There's desire for change. I think that is somewhere where we can win some things. You know, that's we want victories, don't we? Yes, indeed. Yeah, well, I think the sad reality is that we have got teachers that have gone into the profession who themselves have had a Eurocentric curriculum. So they don't know what another curriculum looks like because there's been so much emphasis on the prescribed way. I remember all those folders, you know, that we had to take out and we had to match statements, etc. And we would like to say that we have made progress since then. And unfortunately, I don't think we have. I think we've taken, you know, retrograde steps back in education you know when you look at the fact that the education you receive the education I received I was a mature student look how well we've done and we didn't have this prescribed Eurocentric curriculum as you said the performative culture has kept teachers noses well and truly to the grindstone and where they haven't had time to look at the wider landscape or include other things in and yeah. therefore, we, we've narrowed the curriculum, but we've also turned teachers into technicists, I think, rather that than is. true professionals. So yeah. I guess the, the question is, what needs to be in place now going forward for us to develop anti-racist schools? And I applaud and cheer the fact that the term anti-racist has suddenly come into vogue and is tripping off the tongues of a lot of teachers that I've spoken to. So, Kauza, what what do you think needs to be in place for us to develop anti-racist schools? I think when we we talked about the the challenging, that when we're looking at who it is, so we need to have a top-down and bottom-up change, systemic change. We need to, to make sure that, firstly, our governors are reflecting the communities we serve. Decision makers are also reflective. That those decision makers are educated and informed that anti-racism and multiculturalism aren't just woke comments at the moment, that they have significance. And if those people, the decision makers, fully understand that, then you know we're going to get changes in our institutions. I'm a bit pessimistic when it comes to the change that can come from the top, to be honest. I don't, I don't think the Conservatives really know how to change the Conservative government. I don't think there's that desire for them to do that. I don't think they feel like they need to. So change for me really has to come from the bottom up. And that means that educators, teachers and teaching assistants, I think we've just got to organise to take the power back, to be honest, because as we've said, over the past couple of decades, I'd say from 1987 onwards particularly, um, teacher autonomy has been continually chipped away at. Professional control continually has just been bit by bit taken away. And I think we need to reassert our, our, our role as professionals, um, as educators. And I think the time for, for, to, to do that is now. You know, through this COVID-19 pandemic, schools have proven themselves and the staff within them have proven to be the heartbeat of the community. The nation would not have functioned without 
teachers and teaching assistants going into schools and providing care and uh, support for the, for the vulnerable and for key workers children you know we would have ground to a halt so I think we need to be quite clear that when we go back to school we're not going to go back to the same sort of education system as we went back to before we're not going to go back to an exam factory regime that's driving uh, children's mental health teachers mental health to the floor we're not going to go back to being bullied by Ofsted uh, and, and being told what to do by this detached organization that doesn't really know anything really know how how education should be organized in my view we need to start actually reclaiming pedagogy let's get rid of this this transmission rope teaching where you know that it's been directed from the top you know you need, you can see it now are uh, the social distancing you, in schools you need to teach children facing the front in rows that's their education that's what they want education that's what the education is for them in private schools i would like a dialogic approach you know where children are taught his, holistically as do many other educators most educators that i know they want to develop the whole child not just develop um, uh, hammer them in english and maths and so on but i think you know change has to really come from the bottom and i've been i've been at a lot of meetings over the past well since the colson statue probably 20 meetings around decolonizing education embedding anti-racism in school and at each meeting i'm hearing the same thing we got together as our department team and we are doing this. We got together and we are going through our literature. We are making sure that we are we are celebrating black authors. We are, I told you about the teaching algebra is Arabic. I got that actually from a teacher of mathematics in Tower Hamlets who's now saying before they do in a unit on algebra, they are going to do the roots of algebra. Where does it come from? And learn about its Arabian roots. That if we want change and we all want change, the way that we all get change is by organising for it for us and that also means that I think we need to recognise that education is not detached from what is happening in the rest of society. So we do need to be as t- anti-racist teachers supporting what's happening with the Black Lives Matter, demanding better for black communities, demanding that, you know, just demanding change for our children. Causa was mentioning of children in, in prison. Uh, 50% of children in prison in the United Kingdom are from a black background. That is a national disgrace. 50% of children who are tasered by police uh, from a black background. 70% of children tasered by police in London are from a black background. Now, to be an anti-racist teacher, I think we've got to be the voice for our children. We've got to stand side by side with our, our, our young people in these struggles against racism. You've got no You've been detained calls. because they think that you have a knife? Based on nothing. This is our reality. This is what we experience. This is our truth. And it may not be the reality for everybody, but that doesn't invalidate the fact that it is how we experience it. What has he done wrong? Excuse me, what is the reason why you've handcuffed him? Bianca Williams, a European gold medalist, was because they felt that black person driving an expensive car, that racism, uh, you know, within the police and institutionalised racism isn't just over in America, it is here on our ground. So that if we are going to make a difference, we need to be tackling our education curriculum ASAP. It has to start now. We have to have change, real change in policy and practice. We have to have real changes within our government and all the decision makers. You know, because unless we get that, it doesn't matter. We can what will happen is you know, what the government wants to happen in terms of, oh, let this fire burn, it'll slowly go out and then we'll move on to something else. And that's what they want. We, as educationalists, have to make sure that does not happen. Cause I touched on that National Education Union's anti-racism framework. And I'd just like to do, you know, to, to say that 
that this is a document that has been organised by black members within the union. It's been piloted in schools, has had superb feedback, but it's, it's a document that is there for educators to use as a tool to have those difficult conversations with their senior management about, about how to change things and so how to make sure that black staff are treated well, black children feel safe and able to communicate there, to be authentic within their school setting. So it's a really, it is a really vital document, and, but it is about challenging that power relation in education. You know, it is about teachers and teaching assistants and school staff taking control of their working environments, it's children's learning environments. So, so please, just use that and I but Daniel I think one of the key things there having the framework there and teachers going to their senior leaders a lot of senior leaders won't give it the time of day for the exact same reasons that we've discussed that they haven't got the knowledge they haven't got the the interest it's not it's just a vogue thing at the moment what we need to do is we need to be really asking those questions where schools are held accountable what are you actively doing to have an anti-racist, multicultural, decolonized curriculum. What have you done and what are the progress? And I think that we need to put pressure on the government, Austin and the DfE, those three. That, and, and when they begin to sit up and take notice, that's when we'll get senior leaders in schools actually listening as well. One of my other questions as a follow-up question, actually, is, We've had a very white, middle-class curriculum, and we know that the Ofsted framework mentions cultural capital. But from what you've been saying, it appears that the curriculum that we have at the moment in schools has somewhat alienated students of colour. If we were to turn back the clock and talk about anti-racist education, could you describe a day in the life of Kauser and Daniel and how it might have looked different in an anti-racist school. Absolutely. Uh, so how would my school day look different? Well, I would, so I try and do this as a practitioner anyway, but like I, I embed things like philosophy for children, where you can really tackle sort of the difficult discussions around race, racism, not just race and racism but everything in a dialogic manner in a in a community of inquiry what i would like is more time to do this sort of thing i would like more time to have an inquiry based curriculum where I'm not feeling pressure from my senior management who's also feeling pressure from Ofsted who's also feeling pressure from the government to hammer English and maths in this rote form. The issue is with the ruthless accountability regime, teachers are pressured into this rote transmission teaching which is just damaging. Children are not these empty vessels to have knowledge imparted on them. Beyond just making sure black people are represented everywhere in what I teach and it's not just some token month in October. Fundamentally Fundamentally, I would like more time to do inquiry-based learning with, uh, with, with, with young people. Because if you create the critical thinking skills, because that's what it's all about, isn't it? It's philosophy for children, dialogic education. is about creating critical learners, lifelong critical learners, um, who will challenge power structures and challenge what's, what's been told of them and asked of them. That's what I'd like more, more time of. And that's a, a day in an anti-racist education classroom should look like. In my... I think that for me, very much it would be walking through the door feeling the ethos, being able to see, I belong, I fit in this world, that my, you know, the displays are welcome, that the members of staff that I'm meeting, different levels, the languages that I can hear, that, you know, that the curriculum is diverse, not just focusing on 
anti-racism, but looking at the positive contributions. We've talked about the algebra, looking at the scientific contributions, that looking at that it is rich, it's diverse. I want to be walking into a place that has got high aspirations of me, as high as I feel as a child, encouraging me, smash that glass ceiling and saying that, do you know what, you can be the next Prime Minister, you can be the next X, Y, Z, you know, sort of building me from the ground up. I would want to see that my family, my parents can come to the school and to feel that they are listened to. So, you know, for example, earlier last year when the Windrush issue started to come out about the disparity, about the human rights abuses, one of the children bought a news, newspaper article and said, Miss, I keep on hearing about this Windrush. What, what is it? What's happened? And I said, oh, I don't know. I said, what, what do you think, you know, we should do? How can we go? And, you know, doing the encouraging that inquiry approach where children went away and they found out about what the issues about Windrush were. So then they decided that they wanted to invite somebody who'd been on, came on Windrush and they called her into school and they asked her experiences. And how do you feel about, what did you feel like coming on the ship? What was it like when you came here? So they started asking those questions and they were earning that curriculum. And then from that, they then created a human rights charter related to Windrush and that was all because it was responsive learning because they were heard and that's what I would want for me I would want for my children for my grandchildren and if you are listening to the child wow what an education system we'd have obviously I would like British history to be taught with historical accuracy you know I think we should be teaching children about some of the the, the crimes, the brutality of the British past, Britain's past, you know, in terms of the Mau Mau uprising, Amritsar massacre, famines in their Bengal, and then there's, of course, of course, slavery, which isn't taught with historical accuracy at all, you know, so we tend to teach that, that Wilberforce was this great liberator, the great freer, we tend to teach that Britain was the first to free slaves, those two are just not historically accurate facts, you know. I think Denmark freed slaves before Britain and and then France. And then when France, slavery ended in France through the revolution, Britain tried to reinstate slavery in the French Caribbean and were very unsuccessful at doing that. So it's like moral freer of slaves necessarily. Well, it's not true. But also I'd like to teach about black and white solidarity and anti-racism and how black people and white people have stood together in the struggles against racism. So I was just mentioning slavery there. White workers in the cotton mills of the Northwest went on strike against slave-made cotton because they were so appalled by it. You know, there was there was examples of white resistance to slavery in the, in the United Kingdom. I also think we should be teaching about struggles like the the anti-apartheid South, struggle in South Africa. White people here stood in solidarity with black people over there against the, the atrocities that were, were happening. I was in Tower Hamlet, speaking in Tower Hamlets the, the other, other week. Why aren't we teaching children in Tower Hamlets about how Irish people and Jewish people stood together and kicked Oswald Mosley off of the off of Cable Street, you know, there is plenty examples. Jabin, the Sai and the striking Saris, there's plenty of examples in, throughout our history where black people and white people have stood together in the fight against racism. And I think we should educate our children about that. I think those points in history are totally missed so that the debate about race and racism becomes about black people and white people as oppositional. But actually, we, as you say, we have plenty of examples of anti-racist action where black and white united and in fact I remember that slogan from Rock Against Racism black and white unite and the anti-fascist league from the 80s so uh, yeah we need to go back and grab those moments of history and bring them forward into the curriculum 
a majority of us have worked together and colour has not been an issue. People have stood in solidarity. And that's if we're going to affect change, it is to remove that quote difference and to stand in solidarity with people and saying that, you know, yes, I stand, you know, that to you, your beliefs, to me, my beliefs, but I will stand with you and I will fight for your right too. Just thinking about recent events like the brutal murder of George Floyd and the Black Lives Matter protests across the world. What do you think the future holds in the next five to ten years in England, particularly in terms of race and education? We need to see that our teacher training institutions are fully inclusive. Our curriculum that we are getting our students to explore. Why aren't students actually learning how to decolonize a curriculum? Give a student a project so that your thesis has to be, you've got to take one aspect of the curriculum and decolonize it. And, you know, there you'll have your decolonized curriculum straight away because you've, you know, developed that inquiry approach in, in students. We need to have that training in teacher training that when you know, they are stepping into the classrooms within the next five years that they understand the society that we're in, that they are building aspirations of our children and developing a society because they are the future leaders. So the teachers need to be trained effectively first. And where we've got pockets of all white communities, we need to ensure even more so that their curriculum, their staffing, their approach is even more diverse that, you know, from the get-go, that as soon as you walk into that school, you should be, it should hit you in the face. And it's not a tokenistic, but not the, the history month that we can tick, but it's part of the embedded curriculum. The murder of George Floyd rightly shocked everyone. And I think it, it's made, like, us as a collective quite sick to our stomachs. My concern, really, is that, you know, it's not the first time we've We've witnessed such a such a crime. You know, Eric Garner was also murdered by the police in a similar way. Also uttered the words, I can't breathe. And after that murder, we didn't really make any more steps forward. You know, when I think about some of the police killings in the United Kingdom that have caused an uprising, you know, after the murder of Mark Duggan, I, d- I don't feel we made much gains after that. Having said that, I do feel like we are in a bit of a turning point, a bit of a tipping point in the fight against racism. I live in a, I now live in the northeast of England in a very small village. I'm probably the only black person who lives in this village. And I took my son out for a walk the other week and there's Black Lives Matter signs up in people's households. Certainly not what I was expecting to see in uh, County Durham village but it's 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 excellent in the sense that people are seeing this as a key issue and wanting fundamental change and i hope we can drive that fundamental change forward in education because we fundamentally need that and now's the time to make some advances so i hope in five years time we do see we do force change around the curriculum you know as i said we had two hundred fifty thousand people sign a petition to parliament asking for the truth to be thought on britain's colonial past i hope we can continue to pressure around the curriculum, but also not just in terms of curriculum. I think we need to pressure around things like punitive behaviour policies that really discriminate against black children. You, you know, black children are far more likely to be excluded for wearing their natural hair, which is a disgrace, by the way, They're completely racist. But you could you can put a child in internal exclusion because they've got wearing their hair naturally. So we need to really make some advances around around how black children are te- treated generally in society. Uh, as well and I hope because of the 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 shock 
and and the horror of that murder of George Floyd could be worth something. Is that you know, you know that we could that George Floyd's legacy means that there is fundamental some some fundamental shifts, in, not just over in the US but here also. But in my experience, in terms of organising around sort of embedding the anti-racism framework, now is the time to push that door. It's now the time to have those discussions with your head teachers, have discussions with your SLC, organise your, with your colleagues from the bottom up, because that's the only way we're going to fundamentally force change. Part of the, the anti-racism framework for, for schools, this has been developed by educators uh, collectively and piloted in schools already, and it has now been rolled out, and we're asking every National Education mem- Union member to embed it it in their school now so what we aren't saying that this is just a requirement for black educators to to, to push forward the fight against racism is all of our responsibility you know as uh, Corsa was saying racism is used by the powerful to, to divide black people and white people to keep both down effectively it harms everyone so if you're a white educator also it is your responsibility to embed this framework and really what we're looking at when embedding at the anti-racism framework is is your school explicitly following an anti-racist approach when it comes to leadership teaching and learning pupils power and voice well-being uh, and belonging and does it explicitly anti-racist approach when relating to its community so it's really about embedding anti-racism uh, at all levels of education so so please please uh, embed that in your school. I'd like to thank Kosa Jan and Daniel Kabedi for joining me on Talking Race. I'd like to use this opportunity to flag up the NEU anti-racist framework for schools, which can be found on the NEU website. In our next episode of Talking Race, dedicated to race and football, Dr. Dan Kilvington speaks to two British Asian footballing pioneers, Premi Jyoti, the inspiration for the film Bend It Like Beckham, and Anwar Udin, who is assistant manager at Aldershot Town and campaign manager for Fans for Diversity. This next episode of Talking Race offers a great insight into British South Asian female and male experiences in the beautiful game. So please join us for that episode. Thank you for listening.